And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth, so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand and his staff and struck the dust of the earth, and there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magicians said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. May the Holy Spirit soften our hearts to hear what is taught today. You may be seated. Well, before we go to the preaching of God's word, let's go once, once again to the Lord. Oh, Heavenly Father, we ask that your spirit guide and lead us, whether it be in the, the preaching of, of the word, the hearing of the word, or the applying of the word. Make your word such that it does its work in our hearts that brings about transformation. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, the title of today's uh, message is The Exclusive Power of God. I wanted to add a word. My son Jacob has told me, Dad, when you make these long titles, it's hard to get it on the, the uh, website, so would you stop making these long titles? Um, so I'm, I'm going to just add it here in the sermon. It really should read, Knowing the Exclusive Power of God. There's that knowing theme. God is making himself known uh, to not only to Moses, not only to his people, as we'll continue to see that as he brings them forth and brings them out into the, the wilderness to hear from him his law. Um, but in this moment right now, really, the, the uh, Jews are onlookers, and he is primarily, that is, Yahweh is primarily making himself known to the Egyptians. Today we're going to see that the first Egyptians to know him really are the magicians, the priestly court of Pharaoh. That's what we will witness today. As we think about this, we also know God, and yet we forget what we know of God. We are forgetful beings. I learn this more and more as I move forward in my age. Uh, I forget more and more. It takes me longer and longer to recall what it was, and it takes more and more work to do the research necessary to learn. It's just how the frailty of our beings are. And yet, if you'll do me a favor and pull out the insert in your Bibles, I have placed here a question that really isn't the the crux of why I printed it. It's really how we wrongly view God's power in our life and then how we can correct it. The question, though, I want to pose to you is, how much of the daily news headlines unknowingly affect your biblical understanding of God's power in this world and particularly in your life? My suggestion by wording the question that way is that without even realizing or unknowingly, we, are, we have our power or at least the understanding of God's power Reduced. Reduced by the world around us. Let me show you how that happens. Look how it, look back onto your insert. And this is our practical theology. This is unfortunately how sometimes it plays out in our life. It's, it goes this way. The arrows 
in this wording, the arrows represent a, the progression or degression uh, of, the, uh, of the thinking. So our practical theology starts like this. Every day there are more bad news headlines than there are good news headlines. Anybody ever notice that about the news? News sells by bad news. It doesn't sell by good news. That will always be the case. Then we move on. There appears to be more evil than good in the world just by the number of, of news stories that point out the, the evil, the, 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 the bad in the world. Then the thinking progresses. Evil must be overpowering good. Therefore, the original source of all evil, the devil, must be or is currently overpowering God. Well, we may not say that, but some of our responses, some of what consumes our thoughts or, and our conversations actually reflect that. We, we, we are more concerned sometimes of the evil than of the power of God to use that evil however he chooses. And we know as Christians, he's using that evil, repurposing it for our good and the trials we have to face because we live in an evil world. So let's correct the thinking, looking down at your paper again, the insert. Our biblical theology or our biblical thinking here is uh, our biblical worldview. It starts out as presuppositional thinking. I want to share this with you. I want you to, I'm going to, you're going to hear me keep using this word because I just got done with a, a course on apologetics. And so I want you to hear, we take what we believe as Christians based on what God says, and then we move forward from that truth and apply it in our lives. We don't reason through and then figure out how God fits in. We take what God has said, and that is our starting point. That, that starting point is called a presupposition. We presuppose what God has informed us, and that's the worldview. That's the lens we see things through. So here's the presupposition. God is almighty, all, in other words, all-powerful within the realm of his character. God can't lie. God can't be evil. Thank God. Literally, thank God. God is greater than anything he has created. The creator is always greater than the creation. There's right thinking. Sin was first manifested through the devil, a being created by God. Therefore, God is more powerful than the devil and sin. And that's where we should be viewing our world from when we think about how rapidly our world is morally decaying. We need to make sure that we are seeing it through the right lens. And so our challenge today, whether you're using your bulletin or you're using the, the handout, I also put the, uh, the challenge on the ha handout, is do you really, and when I say really, I'm, a, I'm expressing experientially. Have you experienced, in other words, do you really know God's almighty power over Satan's limited power? I'm not asking for your biblical worldview. I know what it should be. I'm asking for your practical theology. Have you ever experienced God's overpowering, almighty power defeating that of the devil? Could you conjure up in your mind as you're hearing me speak a, a, a remembrance of when the last time you saw God's power overcome, overwhelm, the sin or the, the evil that you faced in your life. Okay, one of the things I want to do today, this, this sometimes by need of, or by necessities, 
Uh, sermons are more theological, he theologically heavy. This sermon is weighted towards application. I'm going to give you some background in the ancient Near East. I'm going to make sure that we exegete the passage correctly. But if you'll notice on the, uh, the handout, in the, in, or excuse me, if you'll notice, not on the handout, but in the, on the back side of the bulletin, the outline, you can see that all the bullet points really line up, the sub-bullet points line up under two, under per, number two there. I'm hoping that when we get to that bullet point where it talks, and we're talking about the armor of God, you're going to have pencil or pen in hand, and you're going to write little notes next to each portion of the armor so that you can do something come tomorrow morning. We're gonna, that's where we're headed, so track with me on this. So let me start. Let's get back into the background. Let's make sure we've got a foundation of understanding of what was happening back then, not contemporarily looking at this passage, but looking at it through the lens of the ancient Near East. We're dealing with plague number three, where God turns the dust into lice. And I, I truly believe it's not gnats. We'll talk about it. Gnats is a contemporary conclusion we make because of the commonality oftentimes of what we have today. We try and associate with this. I truly believe it, it is lice, and there's a reason why it's lice. lice. Lice do not have wings. And I'll just give you that much. Listen carefully to the logic. So I'm going to read to you the background. This background yeah, I give credit to the commentators and the other sources that I got. And there's too many to, to cite here, so I'm just going to tell you all I've done is compiled it and arranged it so it made sense this morning. None of this re of the resources is my own original work. So listen to this as I explain first from a position of a polemic. This is God's polemic or God's attack on the false gods of Egypt. Secondly, I'm going to take it from the perspective of decreation. God's punishment. He rolls creation backwards as a form of punishment on the false gods and on the people who worship them. So let's see this unfold here. So as a polemic or an attack on the false gods of Egypt, I read to you from the various sources. The third plague appears to have been intended to humiliate the earth god Geb, G-E-B, the god who created and ruled over the domain of the land in order to render him nothing in the eyes of the Egyptians. Geb was considered one of the mighty kings of the Egyptian gods. Geb was a mythical member of the Enid of, of Heliopolis. The Enid was made up of nine gods and goddesses. It was the highest order of grouping of, of gods who were associated with the creation of the world. The creator is taking on the gods associated, the false gods associated or given credit for creating the world. Let's continue on. Geb's name was often invoked to heal sick people, especially those stricken with illnesses created by natural elements, such as scorpion stings. Geb would have been called upon to heal the people from the overwhelming bites of the lice that God is going to produce. Geb's roles in Egyptian society were limitless as one of the most powerful gods. The legendary Geb is often thought of as ambivalent. And if you're like me and you don't have a wide range of, of, of your vocabulary, let me give you the definition of, of ambivalent. It means having contradictory attitudes. One attitude this way, one attitude that way. So let me read it again. The legendary Geb is often thought of as ambivalent to his human worshipers, creating earthquakes with his laughter and droughts without reason. So you can see his ambivalence. Um, as the god of the earth, he made 
the massive, inhospitable deserts isolating Egypt from the rest of the ancient world. But Geb could be a kind god, too. After all, he created the lush, fertile land surrounding the Nile. Under Geb's influence, believers would be blessed with bountiful harvests and enough crops to fatten their livestock. So you're starting to see here, wow, this guy takes a lot of credit for what God has done in creation and what God still has control over in creation. So let's move. So now we know why he's targeting this God. We're going to see how it, a little bit more how that plays into decreation. Decreation, punishment. Here we go. On the, on the fifth day of creation, Yahweh filled the realms of the waters and the skies with living creatures. In the first two plagues that we've seen so far, Yahweh has demonstrated authority and power over the water of Egypt and the creatures that dwell in the water, particularly the frogs. So the first two plagues have dealt with a particular realm. Think, think three realms, skies, land, uh, seas. Well, for, he starts off t- dealing with the water uh, in this. This is God's decision to do this. Yahweh had still to deal with the realm of the skies and the land. And the third plague... Yahweh takes on the realm of the land. Remember that on the sixth day of creation, this is going to connect a lot of dots. In other words, why did you strike man and beast? These are the dots that this question is answering or or leads you to answer. Yahweh, uh, Yahweh filled the land, this again on the sixth day, with living creatures. Yahweh filled the land with every beast according to his kind. On the sixth day, Yahweh also made man in his own image and assigned mankind to rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth. The plague of dust to lice was part of Yahweh's decreation. Yahweh moved creation backwards to demonstrate that he is the one and only creator who has the authority and the power to decreate as a means of judgment upon his creation, whether that's spiritual beings or that's the physical world. Yahweh took the dust of the land not to make man as he did at the time of creation. Remember, God took the dust and he formed man, and then out of man he took woman. He formed her from his rib. Now, we don't see that occurring, the dust being created to, uh, for, for good use here. But now he takes the dust to create the wingless insects of the land that will afflict mankind. Mankind was supposed to rule over earth, but now the smallest dust-sized creatures rule by afflicting the greatest of land's creatures, man and beast. The order is flipped the smallest now rule over the, the greatest that should have been the greatest. Thus, Yahweh's good order of creation was reversed. Yahweh's judgment was carried out, and the gods of Egypt were powerless to restore order to God's imposed sentence of chaos. If you want chaos by worshiping another god, or if you are a god who wants worshipers to worship you, the human beings that God created in his image, you will know chaos because God has says if you want chaos I will judge you by what you want and he will give you and me over to that chaos well now let's take a look at this let's take a look at this God's engaging the Egyptians in this in this this particular account today so we'll we look at our first point Yahweh is God over the land 
And we look at Exodus 8, 16 to 17. It reads, Then Yahweh said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth, that it may become, and you have listed there, gnats. Again, I believe it's the wingless, blood-sucking parasites because they're not of the realm of the air, of the sky. They're of the realm of the ground and the dust. I picture the striking of the staff to the ground as a picture of it goes out quickly. That strike goes out quickly. The ground gives, gives, gives way, and the dust is flown into the air, and it's flown in, and it lands on man and beast alike. And now what was the dust which should have been used for creation is now being used in the form of, of lice as a means of judgment. We continue on. Through all the land of Egypt, verse 17, and they did so, meaning Moses told Aaron, and Aaron is now carrying it out. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth. And there were, and I'm not going to use the correct wording, there were, or there was lice on man and beast. And all the dust of the earth became lice through all the land of Egypt. So we see a challenge being thrown down, a line being drawn in the sand. Yahweh has put the challenge down to Geb, the fallen angel who portrayed himself as God and says, do something about this. This is your realm. Make this go away if you can. Stop this plague. Show the Egyptians how powerful you are or show them your weakness, your limited power. Who rules the land, Geb? Do you, or are you humiliated that it is the smallest dust-like particle that humiliates you because you have no control over what I have done in putting these lice on human beings and animals to rule over them as a means of affliction? What a statement. Yahweh is the creator, and therefore he alone is rightfully judged. He is the only one that has the right to judge, and truly he's the only one that has this power to bring it about. Yahweh will not yield his authority to a spiritual being, a being much stronger than we are, much more powerful, And he will not yield his authority to human beings who worship the spiritual world of the false gods. So what lesson can we learn from this first endeavor into into today's scripture, into today's passage? If you are experiencing chaos in your life, the first place you need to look is your own heart. Who is on the throne of your heart? Are you playing God? Are you the false God? Is Geb or any other Geb-like false God, have you given them credit for what happens in your life? Do you go to them? Or maybe it's some other idol. And when I say idol, I'm I'm suggesting that there is a, a spiritual power behind that idol. Lust? Materialism, grumbling, anger, to get your own way, the idol of control, I must have control. These are, these are 
the false gods, the idols that rule our hearts when we do not have Yahweh as our God. And thus, all chaos that we may be experiencing may be first due to our sin, our own sin. Now, we have to start inward first. Now, if you look and you do the examination, you say, there's nothing that I haven't repented of, then it may be that this is something that's just happening on a grander level because we, li- we live in a sin-cursed world and it's happening from the outside and being forced upon you. But we have to be humble enough to look inward first. Let's continue on. Bullet point number two. Yahweh is the God whose power cannot be, be stopped. Exodus 8, 18 reads this. The magicians, remember, keep in mind, the magicians are the priesthood of, of Egypt. So when, they, when it says magicians, don't think of David Copperfield pulling rabbits out of the hat. Think of the false prophets that are tapping into the demonic realm. We are told, do not dabble in evil. Evil has power. Evil originates from the spiritual realm. We don't dabble in that area. The spiritual realm, apart from the the Holy Spirit living in us, is greater than us, will overwhelm us. I have had friends who have dabbled in darkness, and I have seen the ruin of their lives come quickly, come steadily, and come completely. And I ache for them because I was once friends and engaged in life with them, and their lives are ruined. Do not dabble. So this is what, these are the the people who, who call upon the powers of evil. The magicians tried. That little word there has a lot of meaning. They tried to do something. They tried to get the power of the spiritual realm and bring it to bear in the physical realm here. But I don't agree with what may be suggested. I want to give you an argument for something different than you may be reading in your Bibles based on the grammar of this word. I am not saying that your Bibles are inaccurate. I'm saying that the grammar allows, the grammar seems in my opinion to point to something different occurring than some of the English words that are chosen. When I saw this in the Hebrew, I looked to the commentators and say, which of the big guys that I think are pretty consistent that keep me inside the lane agrees with me. I found one in particular. Then I called up my, my language professor in Ireland and said, I'm looking at this and I'm seeing this. Am I off? I don't want to preach error. And he says, no, that's, I think you're on. In fact, I would preach it and preach it with boldness. And thus, I'm going to do. You do not have to agree with it. I believe this is the way it bears itself out. Then Yahweh said to, uh, to Moses, stretch out your... I've got to make sure. Nope, I'm in the wrong one. Verse 18. The magicians tried and attempted to fail. In other words, they, excuse me, they, they tried, they attempted and failed. They lacked God's divine power. There's a difference between God's power and the spiritual darkness power. By their secret arts, we talked a little bit about that. That's the idea of this, this secret communication between the occult those dabbling in evil, and the evil kingdom, the kingdom of darkness. That's what the secret arts are are pointing to. And then it says in your Bible, to produce. It also uses the same word in the NIV. And in the 
King James and the NASB, it says bring forth, and that verb can mean that. That's why I said this is not wrong, what your, your Bible has, has uh, sh- uh, written down there, if you have either of those versions. But I think Moses is doing more there than this. Do me a favor and take your hand out. Flip it around the back where it says Exodus, table of the plagues. And look where it says magicians. I'm going to go down the, the row here. I am using this as an investigative tool. Every week I write down more in this. I've created the categories to help me see things that maybe the commentators or, or the language doesn't give me. And so I, uh, we see here the magician's response in, in the first plague, the plague of the water to blood, um, the magician's response was to do the same. And so they changed the, the water into blood. And Moses turns around and is indifferent to it and heads into his house. Second plague, the frogs. The, the wording there, they're not using the word that is used in our verse. It's did the same. It's a different phrase. And, and they did the same again. But what's interesting, Pharaoh tips his hand. Pharaoh's not okay with did the same. Hey, you knuckleheads, you did that the first time. Ooh, oh, wow, you're powerful. You did the same. But hey, we still had the plague. So that's why you'll notice, go move directly across from, from that box to what Pharaoh's response was. Well, Pharaoh begs for the removal of the frogs. He begs it from Moses. Go pray for me. Go to your God and go pray for me that these, that these frogs will be removed. Now, he promised to let the people go uh, and worship. He lied. And then he, you see I've got the, the, the words up there uh, written in, <clears throat> excuse me, just letters uh, uh, abbreviated there. HH, he hardened his heart. And then DNL, he did not listen. But what I want you to hear is Pharaoh tipped his hands. Uh, uh, hello, fellows, you're not doing enough here. You need some magicians to take away. This is what we are needing. So by the time we get to the third plague, Moses switches up uh, verbiage. He doesn't say did the same. They tried to do the same. Moses changes up, and he says, yatsah. That's the verb he uses. This means to bring someone or something out. Yatsah is the verb for the exodus. Moses is making a point. Moses is saying that that. The, excuse me, the magicians tried not to produce, not to bring forth, but to bring out or to get rid of would be a more common vernacular we would say, to bring out the lice out of their bodies. The lice are painful. They're blood-sucking parasites. They are, in some sense, crippling because they're constantly uh, giving them attention to. This is, this is more than just an, an annoyance. They can't do their regular duties. They can't, they are constantly annoyed by these bugs and overwhelmed by these lice. So they, they, um, they try, knowing that their boss, Pharaoh, wasn't pleased last time and went to Moses and said, get rid of them. They try and get rid of them. And God's statement by not allowing them to get rid of them, enough of your power is what God is saying. I am the only God that brings about the exodus whether it's the exodus of the lice off of the bodies of human beings and, and, and cattle or beasts, whatever word you want to use, or it's the exodus of the people, my people, he says, out of the land of Egypt, the land of slavery, I'll bring them out, or whether it's the exodus of all of us as believers out of the slavery 
of our sin and into a love for Christ that gives us freedom now. We're no longer enslaved to sin. Each of those exodus, starting out with the smallest of, of the lice coming out, that growing progression is only God. It's only Yahweh's power. This is the God that is the God over all creation. I want you to think through this for a second. It says they could not do it. And then look at this, and this is one of the strongest arguments for why I believe it means to come out, to try and bring out the lice or get rid of the lice instead of produce. The, almost all of the Bible translations, the five major ones that I look at, use the same translation for the word that's in your Bible if you're studying the ESV, and that is they use the result word. So it's so. In other words, because of this, this is the result. Because of what became before, this is the result. So what's the result? So there were uh, uh, lice on man and beast. Well, wait a second. There were lice on man and beast when, when God put them there. When the, they couldn't do it, when the magicians couldn't do it, so there was lice on man and beast. It's, it's missing the point. The, 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 there would have been anyway life, uh, excuse me, lice on man and beast because they were already existing there. The so is they couldn't bring them out, so they were still there. So we start to see, okay, hopefully you're seeing that God is making a theological point that I don't know how many of the Egyptians would have, excuse me, the Jews would have got it, but we have the blessing of slowing down, studying the scriptures, and seeing that he's making a theological point that they will later hopefully grasp, and certainly we have the opportunity. So here's the greater point here. Satan's power is limited. limited. It is not unlimited. Just like in Job, he had to ask permission to, to do what he wanted to do with Job. The devil has to, to stay within his limited power. Do not get sucked into the wrong thinking we talked about at the beginning of the sermon, that somehow Satan is in control. I see chaos around. This world is corrupting underneath the moral pressures of people gone nuts. We can't even figure out what gender we are. This is just, God is out of control. I mean, God is unable to control this. Satan's too big. That is not true. Jesus Christ is on his throne. In fact, listen to this. The devil could not stop Jesus from completing his gospel mission on earth. The devil could not trip up Jesus and cause him to sin. In other words, Jesus remained perfectly righteous. He never fell to sin. The devil could not stop God the Father from sifting the devil. That sifting has the idea of he has control. When someone sifts somebody else, they have control over them. The devil could not stop God the Father from sifting the devil and using him as a tool to bring about the crucifixion. Mind blower. Wow. You, in, you, you intended that. You controlled that. You made that happen. The devil could not stop Jesus from rising from the grave. Biggie, resurrection power. Why is that biggie for us? The devil could not stop Jesus from making possible the exodus out of slavery to sin into the kingdom of freedom from slavery to sin. He can't stop it. The gates of hell shall not prevail. We hear those words in the New Testament spoken by Jesus Christ himself. Cannot. He can't stop it. He is not all-powerful. 
And lastly, the devil cannot stop the Holy Spirit from transforming and indwelling every believer. Can't stop it. Don't give up on anyone. Name the person in your mind that's the most evil person in the world. Doesn't stop Jesus Christ from changing that person's heart. Doesn't stop it. Listen to this. Let me juxtapose. It's a cool word that I, I think is, I never knew the, the, the definition before. And now you get this new idea, this new definition. You feel like, whoa, my, my vocabulary is expanding so much. This, this juxtapose means to compare, basically. So let's juxtapose the, person, the power we have. And you go, what? Now listen to this. This is John, 1 John 4.4. 4. This is John speaking to young believers, not little children, physically little children. He's going to call them little children. He means young believers. Listen to this. In John, 1 John 4.4, 4, you are from God, little children, and you have overcome them. He's talking about those that are posing as antichrists, anti-little saviors, the, those that are the false uh, uh, teachers that are trying to get the church to apostate and go south. He says... You are from God, little children, and you have overcome them, meaning, again, the Antichrist who are under the, or are using the power of evil spirits, you might say, because greater is he, greater is the Holy Spirit, is the pronoun he. Or you could say it this way, greater is the Spirit of Christ who lives in you, which, again, is the Holy Spirit. Greater is he that is in you than the devil. In other words, the other he is now the devil who is in the world. We have got to remember that. Let me get down to the nitty-gritty. Let me get down to the how. I've given you the theological truths. Hopefully some of you are like me and you go, nice, Nick. You've got to dial it in. You've got to bring it down to my level so I understand what's the point here. And I'm trying to do that now. I'm looking at myself as the recipient of this, servant, of this sermon and saying, how do I, how do you live in victory over? I just told you that theologically you have the power of the resurrection, the person of, of the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. How do you overpower Satan? Anybody have a reoccurring uh, 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 sin in their life? And if anyone doesn't raise their hands, this is, meta, this is rhetorical. You don't need to raise your hand. We'll talk about lying afterwards. Um, we all have reoccurring sins, something. Are you tired of being mastered by that sin? Is it possible that sin is being tweaked, is being dri- driven and forced upon you by the evil forces of darkness? The answer to that is yes. Some of these sins, whether it's drugs, pornography, I can't think of some of the others off the top. These are from straight from the pit of hell. These are biggins. These are, these are demonically forced upon people. When I say demonically, I don't suggest that for a Christian you become possessed. I'm talking about the war rages, and it's a huge, difficult war. Let's, let's, let's look at this. Let me, so how do we live in victory over the devil? Question number two, are we prepared to fight for victory over the devil? Because... Passivity will not bring about victory over the devil. So, in Matthew 6.13, we see proactively. You see it on your handouts right, ne- right there. I put, there are two steps that are proactive. First is the pray. Jesus says in Matthew 6.13, when they ask him, Hey, Jesus, how should we pray? And these are disciples. These are, these are what we hopefully are, every one of us in the pews. We're not just confessors of the faith. We're disciples of the faith. We said, we've we got to have this applied in our lives. What is it? How do we pray? And he says, 
this at the end of the tail end of that prayer. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from, and we just read, and it drives me nuts, and Pastor Pete knows it as well, that the Greek does not translate into English, deliver us from evil. That is a bad translation that classical, that classic Orthodox religion will not let go of and change. It drives me nuts. It doesn't say that in the Greek. It says, uh, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. There is a being behind this. We are called to, in our morning uh, devotion time, to pray that he, does, he delivers us from the evil one. What is the idea? Don't let him sift me. Don't let him have his way with me. I will fall. I will injure your name. I'm begging you, deliver me from the evil one. Give me the power of the Spirit. Put, as we, as we prayed this morning from Lewis Bailey, bring a hedge of protection. Bring your court of your angels around me. Don't allow me to be sifted this day by the devil. I know I am weak. That's the reality of our prayer and our heart. And then we see proactively, put on the whole armor of God. I'm going to take time to bring you through this relatively quickly. Hopefully I will go slow enough that you're going to write something next to each of the body armor parts. There are, there are six of them listed there on the, in the, uh, the, the bulletin on the back there. This is only six. Do what you need to do to memorize these or have this out on your counter tomorrow morning when you pray wherever it is you pray at so that you can go through this so you can put on the whole armor of God. This is not a cute metaphor. This is a reality that we are called to do. Let's take a look at this. Uh, Ephesians 6, 10 through 18. Finally... Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. He's talking in clothing metaphors. That's the idea. You need to put it on like you put clothing on. That you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. There is a real fight, a daily fight. We need to put on the armor. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. Ephesians tells us that every day is filled with evil. Seems like every day we need to put this on then. And having done all to stand firm, in verse 14, stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth. The belt of truth are God's laws, God's precepts, God's promises that guide us. Write that next to wherever you are if you have a pen. Remember this. This is what you're going to do in your spiritual inventory, hopefully tomorrow, as you think about, I've got to go out in the day. I need to have the armor of God on. Let's continue on. And having put on the breastplate of righteousness, a reminder that Christ's righteousness, you know, I like superheroes. And I think of, you know, some of the, you got uh, Captain America and his, his, his shield is forged with a special uh, steel. And you've got uh, even, uh, oh, I'm going to forget the name of it in Star Wars, the, the guy, he's got a, uh, this is just a new one recently. Anyways, the, he has this body armor. And this body armor is made of this particular steel that is that can't, you know, you can do whatever you want and the phasers just blast off of it. Well, guess what? Jesus Christ gives you the breastplate of righteousness. The armor that protects your chest, your heart, is made from, and I'm speaking metaphorically or, or symbolically, is made 
from the precious blood of Christ. That blood made it possible that his righteousness is imputed in this imagery as a breastplate given to us to defend us. What a beautiful picture. And we continue on. And shoes for your feet, having put on readiness given by the gospel of peace. The shoes are a picture of having a secure footing that is grounded in the gospel. Have you ever tried to fight another sibling, a sibling or a friend? You're goofing around and you're wrestling and you're doing it in your socks or your bare feet and you can't get your ground. You're sliding all over the place. They're able to push you here or there. This is the picture of you have sure footing. Your footing is in the gospel. I go from the perspective, my footing is, I am not working out of a theology of works. I'm working out of a theology of grace when I engage the world or Satan. I realize that I'm not deserving of the grace. It humbles me. I don't go in with arrogance. This is the sure footing of the gospel. And it continues on. As, and uh, verse 15 continues. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, And verse 16, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith. Notice that each one of these are from God. This is not your faith, like somehow it's dependent upon your faith, but rather this is the faith that God gives you, and he's pointing it to it here, as a shield. This is God's sureness, his faithfulness. This is his faith that he gives us. And what does it take on? It takes on the fiery darts of Satan. Not only does it block and the fiery darts hit this so it can't penetrate and hurt us, but the fiery darts are an additional picture. When fiery darts would hit the wooden layered sometimes in some form of metal of the Roman shield, if, they were, if it had hit the wooden part, you got a problem. You've got continuing destruction occurring. You've got to get out that, and you drop that. If you drop your shield to deal with the fire on the other side of it, you're now exposed. And the point here is this shield of faith is such a shield that it, it extinguishes. It extinguishes because our faith is grounded in God who gave it to us, not some faith that is, is dependent on, oh, do I believe enough? No, this is the gift. You believe unto salvation. Now realize that in your life. You were given that gift of faith to believe by God himself. Let's continue on. And take the helmet of salvation. The theological implications of salvation strengthen us. The the theological implications come from the head. The helmet of salvation protects our thinking. We can't be undermined. By, by the devil's accusations, the devil's error in his theology. Oh, Nick, you're not good enough. You did that sin number 199. One more and God re- is done with you. No, no, he's not done with me. He has more steadfast love than I can ever imagine. His mercy overwhelms me. It drives me to say, I'm going to try my best in the power of, of God's grace to not make it number 200. But even if I fail... He still loves me. That's the helmet of salvation that corrects our thinking or, or guides our thinking. And he, he continues on. The, and the helmet of salvation, uh, which is the word of God, and that, the, the right understanding of what God gives us, it allows us our bold rebuttal. Remember, Jesus Christ used the word of God against Satan. Have any, this is a rhetorical question. Have you ever rhetorically spoken out loud when, when tempted by, God, by Satan on any given sin? I'm telling you, it's a weird thing. 
your, your wife or your spouse or your or loved ones or people around you, if you're walking through the, the market square, are going to think you're nuts. But if you've ever been just to the point where I'm tired of being overwhelmed, I want this done with, and you sit there and you speak out the truth, here's the truth, Satan, and you speak forth it, I'm telling you, I have experienced something divine, a power that it brings me through that temptation, and I have not fallen in those moments. And sometimes I'm too proud to do it or too forgetful to do it. Shame on me. Let's continue on. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all, excuse me, I, did, I missed over one in verse 17, the only offensive weapon. And the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. There we go. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Is, the, is what I should have been referring to as the rebuttal. That's the, the sword of the Spirit. That's the, the taking it forward and taking the offensive fight and moving forward. Praying at all times in the Spirit. In other words, are you in constant contact with the commander of Yahweh's army, Jesus Christ? Or are you disconnected from the lines of communication and fighting your battle on your own? I need God's constant power in my life. I fail to remember that. Remember, that's what praying, unceasingly praying, at all times praying is talking about. With all prayer and supplication, to that end, keep alert. In other words, be diligent. If you have a, a, a particular sin or propensity that you've identified, keep it on the horizon. Look for it. Don't let it get in your face. I know when I do X, Y, or Z, that sin's not far behind. When I'm anxious, I'm, I'm admitting to you from the pulpit, I've done this before, when I am anxious, my, my sins, my, uh, the sins that rule me at times, the sins I fall to maybe would be the better way of theologically saying it, are not far behind. I need to know, oh, I'm feeling anxious. Hold on there, partner. Let's go to Lord in prayer. Let's connect up with the, with the commander of the Lord's army and make sure we're dealing with this. To that end, with keep, all, keep alert and with all perseverance, making supplication for the saints. Let me give you two, uh, a few illustrations. We're almost done here. My father, I've told this story before, my father used to have a, a, uh, a um, routine in the morning. I wish my sister uh, Jennifer was here this morning because she, she would mouth it with me if she was here. Dad would go up to his light uh, um, wooden colored uh, dresser, which was about, the, about uh, sermon, or excuse me, pulpit height here, and he'd go over and he'd go, wallet, hanky, comb, keys, rosary, metal, and everything went in his pockets. Now, the first part of that was just making him prepared to go out. You know, he had things he had to do. But the rosary medal, now, my dad was not saved when he was saying this. This was his routine to protect him from evil. He was relying on a rosary, which is wrong, and he was relying on metal, which was the, the, the I think it's St. Christopher. That was the, the, the patron guardian of, of saints. I don't know. I, I've forgotten, thank God, um, a lot of the, the medals and what they stand for, the, the patron saints. The point being is I watched that, observed that. Let me give you another one, a different angle on this. There are four people in this room right now that either are or have been police officers. Every day as a patrol officer, you take your new clean uniform, you go into the locker room, you hang it on the locker, you, you open the locker, you hang it on, and you get in your uniform. You put on special boots that have Vibram on the bottom so that as you're chasing the bad guy down the alley, you're not getting stuck with, with nails in your foot and you're out of the chase. You've got a, a, a ballistic vest that will stop the penetration of the, of the bullets at least to your core. 
You have got the badge that gives you authority. You've got the gun belt um, that secures everything on. You know from muscle memory where every article is on your belt. Because when you're in a fight, you don't have time to look for it. You're just grabbing for whatever is going to help you in the midst of the fight. And you have the gun, which is in this case the, the, the sword of the spirit that it is talked about. If I tried to go out on the streets in, in a, and, and arrived in any one, particularly my field training officer as a young recruit, as a young police officer, saw me missing any article of clothing, he would have sent me right back. Hey, partner, you're no good to us out there. Go get suited up right. Or someone, once in a while, you get the, the young buck. He's going to play John Wayne, go out without his, uh, uh, his uh, breastplate on, his bulletproof vest. Hey, hey, John, head back. Go get that breastplate. If I need a backup and we're in a gun battle, I don't need you down. I need you up and fighting will alongside me. We would not engage the world without getting in our uniform. Why do we as Christians not get that? Because we're not taught that. We, we, we don't have that environment that we're taught that over and over again. We need that reminder. That's why I gave you that printout. Hopefully tomorrow you put on the whole armor of God before you get out. For mothers, man, your, your battlefield starts the, day, the second your feet hit the, hit the ground. Mamas have it early. Dads go out in the world, mamas have it early. They got crying babies. They got everything coming at them. Just remember, do you want to go into the day with, the, with lacking any armor or with the full armor of God. Why? Look at this as we get to James 4, 7. And we've moved from proactive to in the moment, in the heat of the battle. We, James 4, 7 says, resist. This is a command from God to engage in the fight. If you think it's okay for you to be passive, you know, I don't, I'm really not much into fighting. Uh, sorry. You're a Christian. You don't get a pass on this. I need you. The church needs you. Get in the trenches with me. I need to fight. We need to fight. We need to demonstrate our love of Christ. It's this. He gives a command, resist. And the idea is to set yourself in full opposition. I mean, you're using everything on the, on the gun belt, if it, going back to the police metaphor. You are in the knockdown drag out, and you're not sure they're going to get your gun. You are everything and anything. All of your ability is going to disable your opponent. That's the mentality we take into this fight. And yet we have the power of God, which is greater than the devil. We just need to have the right mindset. Yahweh is more powerful, and we see that the devil will flee. He doesn't flee because we give this wink of resistance. He flees because in the midst of the battle, when we're using the armor of God, he can't help but flee because we are engaging the armor that God has given us. We are engaging the person, probably more theologically correct to say, of the Holy Spirit in battle against them. The, the creator can't stand before, excuse me, the creation cannot stand before the creator. Satan cannot stand up to the power of the Holy Spirit. Exodus 19 says this, Then the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. No, they did not make a declaration that this is Yahweh. They have a pantheon idea of God. They, very well, the, the, the Hebrew there could have, it says that it could be interpreted, this is a, a one of the gods, or this is a god. 
is another way you might say it. But at least they recognize in this moment that Yahweh's attack, his polemic has outdone, has overpowered Pharaoh, has overpowered the, 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 the demonic world that Pharaoh is relying on through his magicians. They cannot stand. They cannot stand and resist. This is too much. We can't do it. So let me ask you, what is stopping you from engaging in a victory fight? Well, I'm not sure. Let me just ask it nicely. Is it possibly that you're not reading your Bible anymore? You're not reading your Bible in a way that you love your God and you're looking for your God to show you how to love him more. And one of the ways is to, draw, is to be obedient and get in the fight that he commands us to be. I don't know. Read your Bible. I need to read my Bible more. And I mean that from a sense of that's how God gives us the strength we need. Let's continue on. Is it possible that you are lacking your communication with God? You get to the end of your day. I've been there as a pastor. It's sad. It's pathetic. I'm admitting it to you. I've gotten to the end of my day. That was very chaotic. Time was pushing me. I had things that got to get, needed to get done, and I barely talked to God. And I'm your pastor. And I sit there and say, shame on you, Nicholas. Maybe that has happened to you before. We have got to remember to communicate with the commander of the Lord's army. It's, it ends with this. Exodus uh, 8.19, the, the, portion, the, fault, the end of that verse. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened. In other words, it was resolved towards stubbornness, and he would not listen to them, as Yahweh had said. Pharaoh was resolved to not recognize that who God was who Yahweh was. He's not ready at this point. His magicians are. He's not ready. Are you resolved against your apathy in not fighting to now fight the good fight, to engage like you have not engaged before? And if you have a hard time remembering, buddy up with somebody, whether it's a spouse or a loved one. Give them permission to ask. Do you got your armor on today? And I'm not trying to make this cutesy or make this somehow uh, legalistic, like we go around at fellowship time. Oh, did you do your armor today? I'm not asking you to do that. I don't want to create it to be something it's not. I'm just asking us to be the church. Do you really experientially know God's power over Satan? The answer may be no, because you've never fought with your whole life on the line with using all of God's armament. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We, this can be overwhelming, this message. This message could leave people focused on, I'll never be able to do it. And Father, I pray no one leaves here with that. I pray that everyone leaves here with the understanding, my God is incredible. My God is almighty. My God is powerful. I can't wait to get into the fight because from a sense, from a point of view of I have the new mentality that my God is greater over all of my temptations in an, a very practical way. This isn't some fuzzy, yeah, God, help me, but I don't know what that means. I don't know what to do. No, this is practical, God. Thank you that you give us that practicality in your world, in your word. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.